My name is Lee Humarian. Uh, I'm the tech director here at Grace. Pastor Chris and Beth are just actually coming back down from Ashland, Oregon. They just took Emma up for her next year of college, got her all moved in and settled into her new apartment. So uh, they're, they're, you are in their thoughts and prayers this morning as they're driving. But I have the privilege of, of bringing the word this morning. Uh, one of the things that's most important to us here at Grace, it's actually on the back of our bulletin, is our mission. And our mission here at Grace Lutheran Church is to follow Jesus, to share life together, and to lovingly serve others, all by the power of the Holy Spirit. And to go with our mission, we also have three goals that we're striving towards as a community. And those three goals are being a witness of the risen Christ, establishing an embassy of the kingdom of heaven, and leaving a testimony of the truth and power of the gospel. And as we've been going through Daniel these past few weeks, we've seen those two of those three goals, those first two goals, really personified pretty clearly in the first three chapters. We've seen Daniel leave a testimony, I'm sorry, we've seen Daniel be a clear witness of God in the kingdom of Babylon. We saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego bringing a, an embassy of the kingdom of heaven to the furnace of blazing fire. And then this week, in chapter four, we're gonna, we get to see that third goal personified. We get to see someone give a testimony, leave a testimony of the power and truth of God. Now, the incredible thing is that this testimony isn't from Daniel, nor is it from his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This testimony is actually from the enemy king of Israel, the, the very king that, that conquered Israel and brought all of its people into captivity. And I know this, the, the title of the sermon might give it away. But this morning, we get to hear the testimony of King Nebuchadnezzar. This is the same king from chapters 1, 2, and 3, the same king that built up an idol of gold for himself and said, if you don't bow down and worship this idol, you'll be killed. This is the same king that's giving us a testimony of the truth and power of God this morning. So I think it's, it's going to be an awesome, uh, an awesome look at, at at this king's personal testimony. And as we dig into Nebuchadnezzar's story in chapter 4, I really want to keep us to keep our eyes open for, for three different things. First, I want to look for the way that God not only warns Nebuchadnezzar, but also invites him to, to stop living in pride and to start giving credit to the living God. The second thing that we're going to see is Nebuchadnezzar fail. We're going to see his pride come out, and we're going to see uh, the consequences of, of his pride. But then the third thing we're going to see is the, the work that God does through the consequences, through the discipline, to refine Nebuchadnezzar's heart and give him a humble heart instead of a prideful heart. And my hope for us this morning is that as we engage Nebuchadnezzar's testimony, we would think of our own testimonies, we would think of our own stories and engage our own hearts, our own pride, and give it to the Father. So we're going to dig in chapter 4, it's page 6. 16 in the Pew Bible. We're going to read the most of it, so buckle up. It's going to be about five minutes. I think you guys can do it, all right? <laughs> King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. Verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I brought in all the wise men to interpret the dream for me, but they couldn't 
do it. Verse 8, finally Daniel came into my presence. He is also called Belteshazzar, the, after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. And that, that might also be translated the spirit of the holy God is in him. We aren't sure about that. So, and I said, Daniel, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. I looked and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong. At its top, its top touched the, the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it, on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter and the birds lived in its branches. From, from it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Daniel, can you tell me what it means? Verse 19, then Daniel was greatly perplexed for a time and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Daniel, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Daniel answered, my Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree which you saw, the strong tree, your majesty, verse 22, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty. Verse 25, you will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the most high is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, please be pleased with and accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may that then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Keep those Bibles open. Keep the Bible app open if that's your preferred uh, looking at the text. Um, we're going to be going back and forth through it. If you were following along, I hope you caught a glimpse of those three things that we talked about. I, we see God warn Nebuchadnezzar, but also invite him to change. Invite him to, to let go of his false pride. But then we also see, man, the terrible consequence that will happen if he doesn't. And then later on in the chapter, we're going to see that God uses the consequences for the formation, for the refinement of, of Nebuchadnezzar's heart. I don't know why 
when, when Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, I don't know why he doesn't just call Daniel first, because he, he had a dream back in chapter two. He calls all the wise men, he calls all his magicians, he calls them in, and they don't know what happened. But then he has another dream, and he does the same thing. I don't know why he doesn't just call Daniel first, because Daniel interpreted the first dream, and once again, Daniel interprets the second dream. Daniel comes to the king, the king tells him the dream, and then Daniel is just frozen in terror. He's terrified because he knows that this is a prophecy against King Nebuchadnezzar. But the king insists on hearing the interpretation, and so Daniel compassionately gives it. And I just want to pause here and say I think it's, it's worth mentioning that this is, this is Daniel's enemy. This is the enemy king of Daniel and his people, and yet Daniel still graciously, compassionately gives the verdict to, to Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't rebuke Nebuchadnezzar. And I believe that Daniel desires in the king the same transformation that God desires in him. And so Daniel goes on and explains the dream. And he says, the tree you saw, that tree is you. It's this beautiful tree. It's, it's, it's large and strong. Its top touches the sky, visible to the whole earth with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to wild animals and birds. So just like in chapter two, we have another dream. We have another metaphor. In chapter two, the metaphor was this, this idol kind of made of many different metals. That's what we have pictured here. But in chapter four, the, the metaphor is much more simple. It's just a, it's a metaphor of a tree, of this really beautiful tree. This metaphor was uh, it, it spoke of the king himself, that the king was like the tree. I also believe this gives us a picture of, of how vast and powerful the king's kingdom was. It was visible to the whole earth. It provides food for everyone. I mean, this is a good, a picture of a good kingdom. There's goodness be happening in this kingdom. It's beneficial to the folks that are a part of it. And I think if we didn't have context, if we didn't know what chapter this description of a kingdom came from, we might not think that this is a description of a king that's an enemy of Israel. In fact, I think we might, we might say, man, this, is, this sounds a lot like the kingdom of heaven here, doesn't it? In fact, in, in Matthew 13, Jesus likens the kingdom of heaven to a tree that, that's similar to this, that's flourishing and big and, and provides goodness for the people around him. And so when we have this picture of a tree that, that kind of looks almost like the kingdom of heaven, I think what God is trying to to get Nebuchadnezzar to see in his head through this dream is that, man, you got it made, bro. You have a, a nice thing going for you. You got a great kingdom you have. And not only is it good for you, it's good for your people. You're providing goodness for, for the people around you. But listen, I can take it away just like that. And so we get this, this beautiful and awesome picture of, of, of this vast and powerful kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, but then we get the next part of the dream. Starting in verse 23, it says, your majesty also saw a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and with bronze in the grass of the field. While its roots remain in the ground, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass before him. So the tree is cut down. Nebuchadnezzar is cut down and all that's left is a stump. Nebuchadnezzar goes from being the most powerful person in the world to being lower than the lowest person. I mean, he is not even a human. He, he is a subhuman. He becomes a beast, an animal. And this is, he's falling as far as you can possibly fall and then even further. 
amidst most of it, I think if most of us were in the situation that God was in here, this would be the end of the story. This would be the end of the story. The consequences that happen, that'd be it. If we were like God, we'd be like, oh, oh you, you didn't acknowledge me? You didn't treat me the way you were supposed to? Okay, boom. I'm going to make you like a beast. You're going to eat grass. You're going to be cold every night when you go to bed. And that would be it. We got our revenge, right? We got our revenge, and now there's been justice. But luckily for Nebuchadnezzar, and, and frankly, luckily for us this morning, that's not how God ends the story here. And that's never how God ends the story. Look at the end of verse 25. Now it says, Seven times will pass for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms of the earth and give to anyone his, he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots in the ground means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed, and it may be that your prosperity will continue. And so we have this, this, this chance for redemption, this chance for, for, for God for, for, to do a good work in Nebuchadnezzar's heart. See, God, God warns Nebuchadnezzar, yes, but God also invites Nebuchadnezzar into a relationship with him. It says, hey, if you just see me how I actually am, we can be in relationship. This can work out. You don't have to go through all this, these consequences. God says to Nebuchadnezzar, all you have to do is acknowledge that heaven rules, that I am God and that you are not. You must acknowledge that I am the one, that God is the one that allowed your kingdom to flourish. It's not because of anything you did, Nebuchadnezzar. It's because of who God is. God warns Nebuchadnezzar, but he invites him into a relationship with God. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, he needed to humble himself and understand who he was and who God was. I mean, just one chapter ago, he proclaims that he is a God. He proclaims that he is a God. He builds this golden idol of himself commands people to bow down and kills anyone or tries to kill anyone who won't bow down to it. He thinks he is a God. And chapter four, God's saying, no, 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 no. We're not equal here. I am God. You are not Nebuchadnezzar. God was telling him that he, Nebuchadnezzar needed to understand who he was and who God was. That is the only way a relationship with God can work is if we understand who we are and who God is. So God warns Nebuchadnezzar and invites him to stop living in pride and to start acknowledging and giving credit to the Most High God, to the living God. And how does Nebuchadnezzar respond? It seems like maybe for 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar actually did this, that he listened and did what he has asked. Because it says in verse 29 that when he's walking, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon. So 12 months after this dream, he still got it made. He still got his kingdom. He still got his palace. But as it says in verse 28, all that was prophesied to Nebuchadnezzar happened. The king was walking on the roof of his palace. And then we hit verse 30. He says, Is not this the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my power and my and for the glory of my majesty. Verse 31 says, even as the words were still on his lips, a voice came from heaven and said, this is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. 
You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, what have you done, man? What have you done here? All you had to do was keep your eyes fixed on the Most High God, on the kingdom of heaven, and give him credit. Give him the glory for your kingdom, for the things in your life. But the king's pride comes to the surface, and he gives way to it, and he fails. He fails. And I don't want us to miss the fact that Nebuchadnezzar's pride comes out when he's walking along the roof of his palace. I mean, this is probably one of the highest points in all of his kingdom. And he's way up high. He's looking down on everyone else. I don't think that this is a coincidence. I mean, some of my own most prideful moments come when I think I'm up high and look down on other people, when I put people below me, beneath me, when I consider myself above or better than others. And so I, I think in some way or another, if we're honest with ourselves, every single one of us can identify with Nebuchadnezzar and his pride when he's walking the rooftops, when he's putting others below himself. Because our pride is revealed when we do that, when we think of ourselves as greater or above other people. And so because of Nebuchadnezzar's pride, God fulfills the prophecy of the dream. He does what he says he's going to do. And the text, it says it happens even when the words were on his lips, when his pride came up from his heart and he speaks it out. As soon as that happens, bang, the messenger comes down and the prophecy is fulfilled. This most powerful man in Babylon, the most powerful man in the world at this time is cut all the way down to become less than human, become an animal, a beast. And as mentioned earlier, this, this could have been the end of the story. This could have been the end of Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. Nebuchadnezzar's pride comes out. God cuts him down. He gets what he deserves, and that's the end of the story. But man, that's, that's not how God works. That's not how God works in the, in the story of Daniel. That's not how God works today. God's purpose amidst Nebuchadnezzar's discipline was to teach him a lesson to do a work in his heart, to change and refine his heart, his mind, and his soul. God wanted formation to happen. He wanted change. And often, though, as is the case in our text this morning, in order for that change, that refinement to happen, it's not that quick, and it's not that easy. In verse, 30, verse 32 says that seven times passed by before King Nebuchadnezzar changed. And that word times is obviously a very vague word. It's used a couple other times in Daniel. We don't know exactly what it means. It could be days, seven days. It could be weeks, months. It could be years. And a lot of people think it was seven years that Nebuchadnezzar was an animal, eating grass, sleeping in the cold. Seven years. But the time, the time frame isn't the important part. The important part is, no matter what the time is, man, in the same way that God fulfilled the promised discipline, the promised consequence on Nebuchadnezzar, he also fulfills the promised change, the promised work, the promised formation in his heart. In verse 34, it says, at the end of that time, at the end of seven times, 
I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. Verse 36, at the same time my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. Verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. All those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Verse 34, he raises his eyes towards heaven. I mean, this is such a simple picture, but it's probably the only thing he could do as an animal, as any sign of humility or sign of change. He's, he's, he's an animal and he looks up and he, that symbolizes just his acknowledgement that, oh, you're right. You are most powerful. You are the living God. You are the tr- one true God. So out of this, this, this looking up, this is a, a sign of his humility and understanding his position and God's position. He finally gets it. it was, it's such a simple picture we have here, but it's such a beautiful picture of Nebuchadnezzar and, and the promised change that God did in his heart. And then that last line of, of this whole chapter, the last, the last line we actually have from Nebuchadnezzar sums up his, pers- his testimony perfectly here. It says, all those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar uses his story. He uses his personal testimony written in his own hand. He uses it as evidence to the work that God had done in his heart. And that's, that's one of the, our three goals here at Grace, that we also would leave a testimony of the work God has done, that we would leave a testimony of the truth and power of the cross, that we would leave a testimony similarly to the way Nebuchadnezzar left his testimony and told his story. And so as we engage Nebuchadnezzar's text this morning, as we engage his story and his testimony, I can't help but think of my own pride. I can't help but think of the ways that I position myself above others, just in the same way that King did when he's walking along the roof of his palace. I can't help but think of the times that I have lost sight of God, that I have lost sight of the kingdom of heaven and turned my attention away from that kingdom to my own kingdom, to the kingdom of Lee, to the kingdom of self. And man, I think if I could just keep my eyes on Jesus, I wouldn't look down on other people because when I keep my eyes on God, I, I recognize that, man, I'm just a person. I'm just a sinner. And when I, when I can acknowledge that I'm a sinner, the sins that people do against me doesn't make me better than them. It doesn't make me more than or greater than. God, God is God and we are, we are equally not God. When we can keep our eyes focused on Jesus, we can be like that flourishing tree that we see in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. We can be this awesome tree that's, that, that brings goodness to the people around us. But when we take our eyes off of Jesus, when I take my eyes off of Jesus, I get caught up in my own pride when I get caught up in the things that I think I deserve, I'm no better than a stump in the ground. So church, what kind of tree do we want to be this morning? When I talk about pride, I, I can't help but think of one of Jesus' disciples. I can't help but think of poor Simon Peter. 
There's a story in John 13, you probably know it, but as a prideful person, I, I relate to it so much. It's a story when Jesus, after the Last Supper, right before, the, the night before he goes to the cross, he gets down on his knees and he washes his disciples' feet. I'm just gonna read a couple verses from that real quick. He's washing his disciples' feet in verse six of John 13. It says, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, Lord, are you gonna wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Verse eight, no, 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 said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Well, then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. I mean, the way that Peter responds to Jesus, man, I, I just see so much of myself in that. I, I, and in that text, we see, we see pride in two different ways, in two totally different ways. My, and my pride looks a lot like those two different ways. The first is when Peter tells Jesus, no, you're never gonna wash my feet. And Peter's essentially saying, I'm good. I got this. I don't, I don't need your help, Jesus. I don't, want, I don't want to put you through that. I got this. My, my, my feet stink. They're dirty. You're the son of God. You don't need to do that. I'm good. Then the second time, we see it on the totally other end of the spectrum. We see, we see Jesus say, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. And so Peter says, well, all right, then, then I want to be better than these other people. You just wash their feet, wash, wash everything, wash my whole body, wash my head. I'm going to be your best follower. I'm going to be your best disciple. I'm going to, I'll die for you tonight. I'll die for you tonight. And we all know how that went for Peter. Man, Jesus answers, those who have already had a bath need only to wash their feet. The, the, the rest of their body is clean. And man, my personal pride manifests so clearly in these two ways. So often I think, man, I'm good on my own. I don't need to bother anybody. I don't need to bother Jesus. I don't need to bother God. I'll just hide my problems away. I'll, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. But then all the way on the other end of the spectrum, my pride manifests in a totally separate, a different way. It's just, oh God, man, you're so good. Do a great change in me. Make me the, the best disciple. Make me better than anyone else. I want to be the best Christian. I'm never going to sin again. And it's just, it's just another picture of my pride. I miss the point. I don't realize that Jesus, Jesus just wants to wash my feet. He says, you know, most of you is pretty clean. This one part, this one part, it's pretty dirty. And I think that that's a picture of my heart. I think that's a picture of Nebuchadnezzar's heart. There, there were probably some good things in Nebuchadnezzar's heart, but man, there was this one thing. There was this pride, this, this sin that, that God said, hey man, we've got to wash this. I want to wash this. And Church, I, b I believe that Jesus wants to wash some feet this morning. When I respond to Jesus by saying, no, don't worry about it. I'm fine. I'm good. That's pride. That's, that's my pride. And so I believe that Jesus wants to wash some of our feet this morning. And as we're going through Nebuchadnezzar's testimony, did you find yourself relating to any, any parts of, of the story, any parts of his pride? Were you able to think, man, yeah, my pride looks a lot like that, or, or maybe my pride, my pride doesn't manifest quite like that, but it's a little different. I hope that, that God brought some things 
to the surface because I believe that Jesus wants to wash your feet this morning. I believe that Jesus wants to do a good work in your heart. Jesus wants to refine your heart. When we talk about refining, this is, what we mean is when, when a refiner takes an expensive metal and he, he, wants, to, he wants to clean it up, he, he melts it down, he adds some stuff to it so that the impurities the impurities separate themselves from the pure gold when he's refining gold. And that's what we're talking about. When we talk about refining our hearts, we're saying, God, melt my heart down. Break my heart down. Take out the bad stuff. Take out the dirty stuff. Leave the solid gold. God may have to melt our heart this morning. He may have to break our hearts down to get those impurities out, to clean up our hearts. And it may hurt it probably will hurt, and it's probably going to be difficult. And if we're honest, that's, that's why we so often don't engage with our pride or we don't engage with our sin because it's hard. It's hard to be honest about that because it hurts. And so we don't engage, we live in denial because we don't want it to hurt, and so we carry this sin, we carry this burden with us, we, we live with this pride for days, for weeks, for months, for years, for decades? Man, this morning, if we can let go of our pride and engage our sin, if we can engage those dirty parts of our hearts that Jesus wants to wash, if we can be honest about those things with God, with others, if we can admit to ourselves that we are sinners and, if, and instead of looking down on other people, if we can look up to God and acknowledge that he is God and we are not, Man, I believe God will refine us. I believe God will do a good work, a good cleansing, formative work in our hearts. But church, we have to engage. We have to engage. We have to look and admit to our pride. We have to engage and acknowledge our sin. Because if we don't, like Nebuchadnezzar, eventually our sin is just gonna come out, whether we want it to or not. Like that great, prophet Johnny Cash once said, sooner or later, God will cut you down. I mean, that's, those lyrics are, are from Daniel 4. Nebuchadnezzar, man, sooner or later, God cut him down. Those lyrics are such a, a great picture of, of Nebuchadnezzar. And in one way or another, God will work on our prideful, sinful hearts. One way or another, God is going to do his transformative work Nebuchadnezzar said it himself best in those la that last part of this chapter, that last line of his testimony, those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. So church, do we want to get cut down? Do we want to be like that stump? It's basically good for nothing? Or do we want to be like that huge, awesome, beautiful tree that brings goodness to the people around us? If we want our testimonies to look like Nebuchadnezzar's, if we want our testimonies to have the same kind of result, the same kind of ending as Nebuchadnezzar's testimony did, then we have to acknowledge and engage our pride today. Church, Jesus wants to wash your feet. He wants to wash our feet. But we have to let him. Would you pray with me?
Oh, Holy Spirit, continue the work you're doing here at Grace Lutheran Church. May it be at Grace Lutheran Church as it is in heaven. Jesus, we want to be your living sacrifices. We want to live for you. We want to glorify you in all we think, say, and do. But we acknowledge that there are dirty parts in our hearts. So we admit to those things right now, Lord. We confess those things right now, Jesus. We just ask in the same way that you got on your knees and washed your disciples' feet at the Last Supper, would you do the same for our hearts right now? Purify us, cleanse us. As it says in Ezekiel, take our hearts of stone. Give us hearts of flesh that bleed for you, that live for you. Empower us with your spirit. We are so distracted. There's so many things that take my eyes off of you. I ask, Lord, that you give me eyes that are fixed to you and your kingdom. Give me ears to hear your spirit. Give me a heart that's sensitive to your moving. Lord, I ask this over all of our church. Do your good work in us, we pray. In your name, Jesus, amen.